Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron, and our very first repeat guest is Chris Potter. He's partner and national leader of real estate tax practice with PwC Canada. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So why don't, we're, we're going to assume that not everyone has listened to your last podcast. So why don't we just start with your background, real estate, how you got into working at PwC today? Wow. Well, I've been with the firm for over 32 years at this point. Uh, joined right out of uh, elementary school, actually. Wow. Uh, after, out, of, uh, out of university <laughs> uh, and started the, tradi- the traditional way in audit and then went to tax. I've been working with real estate companies, public, private, inbound, outbound, the whole works basically... Uh, for 29 years now, got in there quite accidentally, but love the industry and uh, spend uh, all of my time in it at this point. And I've been working with the emerging trends in real estate publication for the last 11 or 12 years. I was actually part of the team that brought it up here with a Canadian focus. I was about to say, it's, it's about 40 years running total, but only at a Canadian chapter in the last uh, 12 years, I guess, since you since you joined, right? That's right. Uh, that's right. We uh, we we started the, the as you said, the publication is in its 39th year of print with the 2018 report, and uh, we started with a specific Canadian focus. Uh, this is the 11th report with that, and uh, Canada always did have some input before, but the significance of, of of a specific chapter focused on Canada was a big move forward for us. It's probably a quarter quarter of the the book now would be uh, Canadian content. We actually do two runs of it. So in the U.S., um, the Canadian portion is not the first chapter. But for the Canadian uh, market, we actually do a run that has uh, an executive summary that's focused on Canada. And the first chapter is Canada with the U.S. then behind it. And where can our listeners go and find the report? They can go to our website and, uh, and we'll, be able to, uh, we'll be able to pull that down. And we'll put, it, we'll put a link on ours to the PwC website just to get a copy of it. It's fascinating reading and you know pretty much mandatory yeah, reading. If, if you're a real estate geek, this is this is a great read because it, it's got a lot of insight and, and it, it, it's very interesting because it 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 gives you perspective of what the industry is thinking about and what what they think they're where they think that we're going in the future. Thank you. I appreciate that feedback. We uh, and you know what, it's consistent with what we hear all over the place. We speak to CEOs and uh, both both on the private side and on the public side that uh, hold this publication up and they expect all of their real estate folks to read it. It really is um, a great publication and it's great because we sit down with the industry directly, both in surveys as well as face-to-face interviews and and really get to talk to them about where they see the trends moving and what's going to happen in the industry going forward. Before we dive into the numbers this year, you know, has it, how has it, uh, how has it changed? How has the publication changed in the 11 years you've been involved with it, you know, or has it more or less stayed the same? You know what, the format in, in terms of us reflecting what we hear from the industry, it's, it's still the same format and, and it's a formula that works. But if you look at, and, and I do from time to time, go back to those earlier publications and look at the growth and how the publication has changed. And I think there's a lot more depth a lot more insight um, that we've been able to build in year after year. And we're really proud of the way we've been able to uh, make this publication change with the needs of the industry and, uh, and reflect the times. So Chris is a repeat guest and he was on this time last year to discuss the forecast for the year that, uh, that just went by. And if anybody wants to go back and listen to that episode, we'll put a link as well in the, in the show notes. Um, but just to start off, maybe look backwards for a minute into uh, to our last episode and what we discussed then 
and then look forward. Does that uh, work for everybody? Let's do it. So I made a couple of notes. I actually re-listened to that episode just uh, in the last couple of days to familiarize myself with it. And a couple of things that stuck out. Uh, last time, numerous times, it was mentioned that we're, we're pretty pretty long into the cycle at this point. You know, We hear that not just from Chris, but from a number of people. But do you see a credible end to the cycle or resetting to the cycle at any point in the next couple of years? It's a great question. I guess if I really knew the answer to that question, I probably wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd be sitting back in the sidelines waiting to, to reap the investment. You know what? I think we're, we're obviously longer in the cycle. We continue to it, expand. It, it is the longest cycle between recessions. I don't think we've, since we've been recording this thing, if not for the last 150, 200 years type of, type of, you know, statistic. I, I, think, that's, I think that's right. Yeah. It's uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, and I guess, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to look back and sort of build out all of the reasons for it. I'm sure there are there are many. Certainly, a low and declining interest rate environment that we saw. You know, we went through the financial crisis uh, that the world suffered, starting in the U.S. Canada. You know, we I can't say we didn't have any impact, but quite frankly, it was it was a speed bump, uh, and we've just continued on. And I think that that sort of builds into some of the themes coming out of last year and this year. Last year, I characterized the sentiment as cautious optimism. This year, I think it, it's really much the same. I would modify it a little bit and say more defensive optimism. Hmm. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that I think that the sentiment that we've heard from the industry clearly is that there are lots of opportunities. The fundamentals in Canada are good, notwithstanding some of the noise that uh, everybody has heard in the media around housing affordability. Uh, everybody's also aware of the disruption that's happening in, in the retail side of the house. But looking at the demographics in Canada and looking at just Canada on its own, uh, everybody feels really good. But we're also very aware. We are Canadians. We are aware of what's going on in the world. And there are lots of issues and concerns from a geopolitical perspective and just watching what's happening around the world and a recognition that we are at a high point and that there are things to be concerned about. And so when we sort of sit back and listen to what we heard from the industry, I think that the overriding sentiment is Lots of opportunity. We're going to look for those opportunities. We're not likely to get much more, if any, from compressing cap rates. So we actually have to run a business. Um, but we're going to be more defensive. We're going to be a little bit more careful. We're going to make sure that we're sticking to our knitting, that we're investing where we should be investing, and that to the extent that we're able to bring down uh, things like leverage ratios, that we're doing that, and that we're focusing our investments where we know we're going to get the best return. I'm going to apologize for the listeners that you might hear some paper flipping. We've, we've both got, all three of us have sort of a stack of paper that we're flipping through as we're trying to reference comments. So, you know, just if you hear that, that's, you know what we're doing. On that point, Chris, did you note any, any change in that sentiment that there might be more, more of a sell? Uh, I know one of the questions, that's what I'm flipping through my, my stack right now to see, you know, the difference between 2016 and 2017, if there is more of a, a, you know, a notion of selling their assets than there was last year. I think one of the things that we heard a little bit more of this year for in respect of 2018 is a sense of rebalancing, rebalancing of portfolios. And that is going back to my earlier point, which is, look, if we've got a portfolio and, and there are some examples that people can look to if they're aware of what's happening in some of the news releases in the last several weeks, where some of the larger players will have announced that they're selling assets um, that are in, say, secondary markets or that are non-quarter their business in order to liberate capital uh, that they can then redeploy in areas that they see greater opportunities. Yeah, in. specifically the Rio Can announcement. They're that selling be one a of them, massive yeah. amount of their, of their portfolio. Dream as well this year, yeah. a load of some properties. 
Uh, do you have any sense, Chris, how that's going to impact the marketplace? That the, you know you've got these large portfolios coming to the market, and, and do you think they're going to be absorbed, or how easily will they be absorbed? You know what? What we're hearing is that uh, they will be. I think that there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of capital available. There are a lot of players. There are a lot of people that are looking to build portfolios, and there are people both locally and nationally uh, that can take uh, take things and and turn them into turn them into gold. Or at least they feel they can. That's why the market mm-hmm. works. And I think that uh, the sense is that um, it will be absorbed. I don't think it's happening sort of overnight. I think it will be done in the normal course. And uh, there, as I said, there's lots of capital, both within the country and interested in coming into the country yeah. that are looking for opportunities. You know, the, the, the sentiment that we're hearing on that note is that you know, entering Canada from an international perspective is expensive. It's not cheap to come here, right? I mean, especially if you're coming from the U.S., there's a lot more, at least it seems like there's a lot more opportunity for, for on, on, on the upside than there is in, in Canada. I think that depends on what you're, what you're actually measuring, what you're looking for. I think I would agree that if you were looking at somebody that was looking for more of an opportunistic play, I think that there probably are areas that might have a bit more upside. Although one of the sentiments or concerns in the U.S. is that they're also getting relatively long in their cycle, which is now, you know, really only coming out six or seven years, mm-hmm. uh, maybe eight years in some areas. And they're getting concerned that things might be get, getting a little bit frothy. But if you're looking for sort of an opportunistic play, sure, there may be other oper- there may be other areas. But I think a lot of international capital comes to Canada, largely because we are stable. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's a more mature market in that sense. You're not going to see the big swings going up necessarily which is, I think, why some players are looking to get more into development rather than just acquisition to try and get a better yield. But if you're looking for a stable, uh, a stable return in an environment that's politically stable and, and safe, that's that's one of the. I think those are some of the reasons why people are coming here. On, on last year's podcast, the the term was safety and security being the big driving force for foreign investors. That obviously is just plugging along and uh, driving a lot of activity here. Uh, you also mentioned last year. That slow and controlled interest rate hikes preferred than a large shock to the system. And in Q3, Q4 of this year, we did experience that, a gradual increase. It points a little rapid, but for the most part, a fairly gradual increase in uh, interest rates. How much of that was reflected in people's outlook for next year? I think that people have largely seen what they expected to see. So yes, we did expect, and I think the government of Canada was pretty good in letting everybody know what to expect. And I think that what happened is largely in line with what was expected. And I think the sentiment looking forward is, and and I think it's in line with what, again, we're hearing from the Bank of Canada, that there may very well be more rate hikes, but they're going to be slow. They're going to be uh, measured. They're not going to be an overnight shock. And I think that a good chunk of that's been priced in, and in my words, priced in, in terms Mm -hmm. of people's expectations. And that you know, they will expect there are, there are people generally would expect there will be some more or maybe some more in, uh, interest rate increases over 2018, but it's not expected to be dramatic and it's not expected to be uh, coming out of the blue. Nothing is going to arrest the market and cause turmoil. And that's right. People can't accept. Now, now, the caveat to that, of course, is that that's all assuming that there's no major geopolitical event that uh, sure. uh, that that throws everything into a. Or I, I was reading an article earlier, you know, just the flattening of the yield curve, where the you know the ten year bonds are coming down to the compared to the five or the shorter term, and that that might have an impact on decisions for raising interest rates in the, in the short term as well. Right. Last year, your favorite slide in the report was the average size of a home worldwide, which strays off a little bit from the focus of a commercial real estate podcast, but it was an interesting discussion point. 
What was your favorite slide this year? The one that opened your eyes the most? Um, you know what? It's interesting. And, and I was a little bit disappointed. We actually don't have that slide in it this year. And I've sort of said to the team, I don't care how we do it next year. We need to get something similar in there. We've had some problems getting, getting sort of credible information at the right time. So if you look at the, the publication this year, I actually have, it's not just one slide. And, and there's, there's a slide that deals with the net migration coming into and out of Toronto, as well as dealing with affordability across the country. And a, and a, and a third slide uh, that is dealing with the number of, uh, uh, or the proportion of youth that is still living at home. And not that we should be focusing a lot on the residential side, but let's face it, what happens in residential, I mean, it's the base. It deals with where people live and, and that then drives everything else in real estate. The only reason you need office space is because you have people here. Mm-hmm. And if you can't have people here, you can't have offices and you can't have malls and you yeah, can't have retail because people are buying things exactly. industrial because yeah, exactly. And, and so yeah. I think from my perspective, as I sort of listen to the industry and, and sort of think about what we heard. Everybody needs to be worried about what's happening. And so I look at those slides because I think that there's a lot of information that come out of those three when you look at them together. And so, you know, there's a number of themes that come out of the report this year. And if you look at affordability as, as you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, outside of this is, is you take Vancouver and Toronto out of the mix. We really don't have a huge problem with affordability in the country. Now, Montreal more recently is starting to pick up and some people feel that that might have something to do with uh, uh, a migration or a, or a further movement east of, of of capital that came in starting in Vancouver and uh, went to Toronto mm-hmm. after after the fifteen percent uh, foreign buyers tax went in there and then obviously has come into Toronto. But when you look at it, you've got youth that are staying home longer. So instead of taking that natural housing formation and turning it into uh, buying a home, they're saving their money. Uh, in fact, if you looked at the paper today, they were talking about how. Gen Y are better at saving. They're better at saving. Why? Because they're not buying homes. They don't have mortgages. We have we have a number of staff here that are, I mean, 27, 28, 29, and been lived at home their entire lives. And I'm looking at them like, how are you going out every night? Oh, that's right. Because you're not paying $3,000 a month in rent or exactly. mortgage payments or but, whatever. But let's, yeah. not, but let's not stop at homes. They're also not buying cars. True. You yeah. Know? So, you know, look at the, look at the proportion. And it's probably the first time that I can think of since cars have been around that you got a bunch of kids that are not running out on their 16th birthday to get their license. You know, I, I was out my 16th birthday to get my license and then saving as fast as I could for a car. I could not wait to drive, but I was born in 78. So it'd probably be part of the last uh, round of car purchasers. So you're finding a lot of them now that don't. So they're saving more money. Is that a good thing? Yeah, I think it's a good thing. So let's look at the rest of those slides. What are they telling us? So affordability is really Toronto and Vancouver centric. We all know what's going on there. Um, and, and we can talk more about sort of what it means, what, what the industry thinks more broadly, but stepping back. So now, so taking that out of the equation, let's look at migration into Toronto and there's the chart there. I think it's one dash six. That slide caught my eye. It's unbelievable. So, so look at that and, and let's, let's, let's talk about what's happening. We, we talk about the supply and demand, um, uh, metrics. And so you've got this huge cohort of people coming in through immigration into Toronto. A foreign immigration specifically. Foreign immigration yeah. specifically. But then you also see a net out or a net migration out of Toronto, which is also fairly significant and growing. And what does that mean? What I take from all of that is, and especially when you sort of listen to what's happening more broadly, people that are here that can't afford to buy homes are looking to move elsewhere. I mean, my kids are a little bit older and I look at what they and their friends are doing. And it's surprising to me, the number of them that are looking at moving to other areas, some of them wanting to move to Guelph, some of them wanting to move to Ottawa, to Barrie. And so they're moving further away. 
some of it because they're just saying, you know what, I'll worry about getting a job when I get there. But for right now, I want to, I want to move someplace where I can actually live and enjoy my life. Other people are looking at the expansion of transit and investments and moving people around that the governments have been making and saying, I can, I, I want to live a little further out, even if I do have to commute in. So you've got some dynamics there that I think are starting to, uh, that, that come together to tell a bit of a story about some of the themes that we're hearing. Do you think it's just equilibrium? I'm, I'm not sure we're at equilibrium yet. I think, or, or is that, but that's the force. That's, that's the force. That. That's yeah. the force. I think you've got, you, you do have affordability issues and I don't think there's anybody in the industry that I've spoken to that isn't somewhat concerned about the level of affordability, but they're also taking a look at the various dynamics around supply and demand and saying, you know what? We really don't see a lot of drivers for it to change in the near term. You've got all of these people coming in, notwithstanding some of the actions that have been taken to reduce demand. On the other hand, you have this large wall of people that are coming here and mm -hmm. going to be coming here continually into the future, and they have to live somewhere. This is a question that's a bit of a going down the rabbit hole, but Chris, you're clearly well-spoken, and I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are on this. And we're talking about emerging trends, but you know, we're talking about kids staying at home longer. What happens when their parents decide to downsize? Like, and then we're seeing a little bit of that, but we're still 10 years away from the sort of the major wave. Do you have any sense or what's your, what's your instinct of when the baby boomers finally do retire and decide, okay, I'm going to cash out on my $3 million home that's free and clear. Like, how does that, how does that impact real estate at large? You know what? It's interesting. I, and I wish I had a perfect answer, but I can, well, what we're seeing and hearing, and then there are folks that are starting to look a little bit more into this. And I think part of the sentiment that we're hearing is that that baby boomer cohort that you're talking about, a lot of them plan on and want to age in place. Hmm. So yes, there are some that are downsizing and some of them are moving to where their kids move. So they move out of the center, they get married, they start having kids. Guess what? Maybe mom and dad, now grandma and grandpa, might want to be a little bit closer. So maybe they do downsize. And there are people that are doing that for lifestyle choices and saying, let's let's get out now, let's put some money away. And they're actually using that money to fund retirement. I think the sentiment overall, though, is that a significant proportion of those people are going to age in place. And it shouldn't be surprising that the government is also looking at healthcare delivery to support that because maybe it's a little cheaper and maybe it's more in line with what these people want. Hmm. Which would put people in their homes for several more decades. If they're gonna yeah, it, it's, so. it's a really fascinating concept that we have, we have no idea how it's going to work out. I just, it's one of those things that's coming at some point and maybe it is nothing, but my mind thinks if the average age today is 55 of most neighborhoods, when it's 65 or 70, there's probably going to be a lot more listings than there are potential buyers, right? So, so, so you know, just, it's interesting. I've heard this story more than once mm -hmm. in my travels. So going back to the, you know, maybe the aging boomer wants to sort of get into a condo. I'm also hearing not that they're going to sell the family home and cash out. They're going to keep the family home. They're going to buy the condo in the city anyways, mm -hmm. but they're keeping the family home because they don't know what their kids might need. Oh, fair. And so they're going to keep the family home so the kids have some place to live if they need it or maybe leave it to them when they sure, pass on. Sure, sure. Reverse mortgages potentially or or I hear often that the only way that kids, you know, the 20-somethings are able to afford the prices of condos downtown Toronto or Vancouver is because their parents are leveraging up the single family home and gifting them the, the difference. And that's sort of almost an estate planning exercise, right? Yeah, no, I, that's right. So do you want to get into the, let's get into the nitty gritty of the, yeah, of the report. Let's start the, uh, the forward looking part of the, okay. uh, yeah, let's get on there. We've, we've kind of delved into it already, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so there. why don't you start Chris, maybe with, with what you're, you're most interested in or what you found most surprising about your research this year. 
I'm not sure that there's a lot surprising. Like you said, we talked a little bit about rebalancing portfolios. We don't need to sort of go back down that one. Affordability is, a, is, is going to continue to evolve. Um, and I think that there's a sentiment out there that affordability is, notwithstanding some of the more recent actions um, by the various levels of government, that affordability is going to continue to be an issue. I guess the one that really stands out as a big move from last year is technology. Uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, one, one of the themes that we see is reinventing the need to reinvent through technology. And I think that as much as we talked about it last year, and there were some great quotes about how people need to pay attention to it, the movement in the year has been astounding. Technology is affecting everything, everything from autonomous driving, um, automobiles coming upon us and what that's going to mean to everything from where people choose to live and how they view commuting to what it might mean in a, in a retail context uh, and in an office space context. It's and, awesome, and so isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's awesome. Building efficiencies are getting better and better. Yeah. It's, I don't know if you got a chance, Chris, we had Amy Erickson on who, who, who is a futurist. And so we had a whole episode about this topic and it, it mind boggling, but really exciting to, to you know, think about it. Well, it is. And you know, it's, it, it's affecting everything we do. I mean, the obvious part is when we look at what's happening with retail and the fact that there is a growth in online. And, and the thing that's astounding with all of the disruption in the retail space that we're seeing, when you look at the amount of sales that are actually done online, it's still relatively small, but it's growing. And if that sort of a small movement has that big of an impact, think, think about what happens when it becomes even more. With the headline a couple of weeks ago, Canada Post overwhelmed with number of packages coming through, right? Well, I mean, we talked last year about some of this and you know the feeling was, that certain types of malls, certain types of businesses might be a little bit more immune. And I think that, you know, not, not the least of which might have been sort of your daily need type malls and, your, and, and, and retailers. But now when you're looking at the prospect of technology disrupting, disruption affecting the grocery industry, you know, you've got retailers like the LCBO now looking at allowing you to purchase online and doing deliveries. And those are oh, key yeah. anchors for many malls. It, it changes. It, I think what it does, if, if nothing else, it has to make you sit back and think. Uh, on that note, I was at the real estate forum a couple weeks ago, and one of the panelists was talking about how they're, they're all in on grocery-anchored retail. And who cares if grocery uh, stores get, become obsolete because of online delivery? I'll just convert that to a fulfillment center because it's got the high clear, clear ceiling. So he's, they're all, you know, real estate investors are already starting to think about the what-ifs and how can I convert it. And I think that that's the kind of thinking you have to have. I mean, the one thing that comes up a lot when you talk about the interplay, and it's interesting, historically, we would never have talked about retail and industrial in the same, in the same sentence, but now they're linked. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you think about it, it's all about last mile delivery right now. Yeah. So yes, you need the new formats and sit on sort of exteriors of the city, and you need to be able to drive a lot of product uh, and move it quickly. But you also are now finding an acceleration in delivery times. Well, you can't do that from a centralized warehouse. You need Out to by have Pearson some, Airport exactly. or wherever. Yeah. You, you need to be closer to your yeah, consumer. That, that urban industrial node is really important. And the, you know, the clear heights are really not that significant to that. It doesn't really matter because no, it's coming in, it's there for an hour and it's being distributed that, you know, that's that the same point. day. So you're yeah. seeing condos now being built with concierges that can facilitate um, package delivery and, and you know, not maybe just for that building, but for buildings in, in the neighborhood. You've got, so you've got one REIT in particular that's been looking at taking a look at their retail footprints and facilitating uh, uh, pickup of product, um, multiple types of just, product. Just while we're, we're on it, I mean, in the in the report, there's a graph that's um, prospects for commercial subsectors in 2017. And of course, fulfillment and warehouse are number one and number two in both the investment prospects and development prospects. So, as they were so last clearly, year too. as they were last year too. So clearly the industry has acknowledged or identified this 
wholeheartedly. Absolutely. And by the way, it's the same in the U.S. If you looked at the same charts in the publication um, in the U.S., you'll find that they're in exactly the same place. It's an issue. And of course, the U.S. is further ahead. I think certain major online retailers in the U.S. are now looking at two-hour delivery. Again, going back to the point, you can't do that if the actual uh, physical location of the product is too far away from the end consumer. Right. Yeah. So it's it's driving a lot of things. And I think when you put everything together and look at what technology is doing and is likely to do, and none of us have a, have a clear crystal ball, but just evolutionarily where things are going. You're seeing a, a greater link, I think, between the owners of the real estate and the end consumers in a way that we haven't before. We talked about this earlier with respect to retail and the need for landlords to actually partner with the retailers and think about what they're doing with that space to create demand, to create a draw. Why should people come to this mall and walk around? People will always seek out malls. Nobody's ever going to argue that some of our super regionals are ever going to retailtainment. Is that the that's but the retailtainment? Yeah. That is absolutely correct. That's what we're hearing, and that's what we're seeing. And you're seeing a lot of folks doing a couple of things. They're actually looking to reposition their retail footprints to be more responsive. They've gone way away from fashion-oriented malls, for example. In higher the, higher restaurants, a percentage. High, higher food, higher entertainment, and you're also seeing some of the larger landlords of the retail space announcing plans for intensification. Mm. Um, oh, for sure. Now, now they were some of them were talking about purpose-built rental. They're more 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 recently talking about condo, and that's driven by a lot of reasons. Not the least of which is you know that land value is basically zero, so it's all incremental dollars for them to build that out. But it's also driving foot traffic for the retail footprint that's left. Sure. It, it, it could be attractive to live next to one of those malls where you've got seven different restaurants and, you know, just the experience of wandering around. Especially if you're on or near a transit node. Yeah, absolutely. Those, uh, those same large malls, some of the largest malls in the country have spent considerable sums of money or investment in expanding their retail component too, not just, uh, re- not just residential, but t- the largest malls have put in, much larger, flashier spaces. And, you know, I, I would say that for the power centers anyway, it just seems to be working. Uh, anecdotally, you know, I live close to Sherway. And I remember when I moved there, it was Pumpernickel. And that was really the only retail or the only restaurant available. And now they've got a keg, they're opening up a cactus club. And there's probably four or five I'm not even thinking of that are now available there. And that's just part of the transition that Cadillac Fairview sort of pushed for them. No, absolutely. And, and a lot of them are using data analytics, coming back to technology again, to try and understand, okay, why are people coming here? Where are they coming from? What do they what want are they doing? when they get here? Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of data that gets generated anyways. And I think one of the next phases of things is going to be making sure that people that are landlords aren't just dealing with asset and property management in the traditional sense, but that they also have the in-house expertise or that they're working with people that can actually help them mine the right information out of that data Mm -hmm. in order to make good business decisions and stay relevant. Just while I'm thinking of it, and I got the page open, third on that list of prospects for for commercial subsectors, curiously, is age, sorry, sorry, fourth on the list is urban high street retail. And then second, or sorry, third on the development prospect list is is urban high street retail. What is that? What does that mean? And and why do you think it's, you would think that retail would be at the bottom of that list? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with experiences. And so in a Toronto context, urban high street retail, what should come to mind for most people, I think, is that sort of uh, Blur Street West sort of corridor as an example. And you know what, whether it's in New York or whether it's in Toronto or anywhere else, that that still seems to be a draw. And at least in today's context, there's more to the experience than simply a commodity uh, that you can go online and so buy. That, so that high street retail, you're talking about, you know, 
seven thousand luxury luxury you, products. Your high end products, and, and I think we've talked about this before in this podcast, and I'm losing track of which which episode it was. But but is that just by virtue of the fact that you've got international uh, retailers that are moving to those space that are used to spending three thousand, four thousand dollars per square foot for that access, so you can actually make a good coin on on owning retail in that in that sort of neighborhood. It seems to work. Yeah. Um, I wish I could uh, tell you that I fully understand all the economics. I'd be lying. I get some of it, but I think that a lot, that has a lot to do with it. You've got a certain niche area for that demand. It's not extensive. Um, there is relatively little of it, and it is it is desired. Yeah, I, I, seems I remember hearing someone saying that you know at one point uh, one store finally got a it was twelve hundred dollars a square foot for for a retail lease in that neighborhood, and uh, the tenant kind of said, "Well, I pay six thousand a square foot in Paris, so this is a this is a discount this for is a me." Bargain, yeah. yeah, right. Okay, so that makes sense. Where do you want to go now, Chris? What would you like to talk about? Well, going back to some of the themes, and I think it builds on some of what we've talked about before. One of the things that we talked a little bit about in the publication is what's going to happen or what may happen in Canada around a concept that we identified in the U.S. a few years ago called 18-hour cities. And again, going back to my earlier comment about what we're seeing with the demographics and people moving further out, what we saw in the U.S., and again, it started a few years ago, was largely the younger folks in some of the major gateway centers like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, et cetera, can't afford to live and work in those centers. And the younger generation seems to be a little bit more focused on broader life experience and started making decisions to go to secondary cities where they actually could afford to live Mm. and have the lifestyle they want. And interestingly, unlike some of the older generations who might have made a decision to locate where their career prospects were best and then figure out how to live there, some of this generation started saying, I don't want to live there in the major center because I can't afford to and have a lifestyle and started making decisions around what their lifestyle needed to look like and figured out that they'll, you know what, we'll, we'll deal with the job situation when I get there. They started moving. And some of the, and then after a while, enough of them moved, some of the jobs started to go out there as well, especially some of the cooler employers. And so you started to have some of these areas like a Charlotte, North Carolina, like a Seattle, start to grow and really see some population growth and all of the amenities that go with that. And with the population growth came employers because they were constrained for the chasing, workforce, chasing, chasing, the employees. chasing the employees, and started to build out amenities and started to get to enough cultural and entertainment activities that were local to support that growth in the population. They started coining the phrase that this next wave were 18-hour cities. Lots going on. They weren't in the same category as a New York or a, a San Francisco, et cetera. But they were growing, they were large, they were vibrant, and they were attracting that younger demographic. And guess what? When that younger demographic was settling and having kids, some of the parents of those kids started moving out there as well. Hmm. And so if you go and actually tour, and actually I had occasion uh, over the last few months to go down to a couple of these centers and tour the way houses are being built. And it's it's interesting how new housing developments in some of these places are, it's a necessity to have an in-law type apartment for parents that do come and want to stay with them. That, that's what started to happen. And what we're starting to see is maybe some green shoots around some of the similar concept happening in Canada, where centers like Vancouver and Toronto are becoming out of reach for some of this demographic. And some of them are making decisions to live further away outside the city. And whether that what that means in the grand scheme of things, whether it's in Ottawa, uh, whether it's a KW or a Guelph that starts to start to show some of these signs, we're starting to see some signs of that. And hmm. that's why we're sort of calling it and saying, I wonder if we're going to see uh, more evolution of this concept. 
Hamilton springs to mind as well as a city that's experienced some of that in the last few years. It's uh, far enough away that you can save a considerable amount in your housing. And it started to develop a real, a real uh, undercurrent of cool to it. Absolutely. And you're seeing some revitalization of the downtown as yeah. a result of that as well. well Hamilton is one of those cities where if you were there 10 years ago compared to today, you'd be shocked at how much it's changed. And if you go there 10 years from today, you'll be just awestruck by how different it is. It's, it's, it's changing so rapidly. It's changing rapidly. And we're also seeing a lot of change within sort of the larger urban cores. One of the other trends that we've seen here, and, and last year we talked about sort of you know, mixed use evolving into mm. sort of building community. And we're now calling it placemaking. And the, the, the way we've sort of characterized it is as a theme is the rise of placemaking. This notion that it's not about sort of mixed use in the context of a couple of towers with a, a little bit of ground space retail. It, it's much more involved. It's, it's a real coming together of several uses, uh, might be residential, retail, hotel, office, and a little bit of industrial, but really creating a community in a broader context that has its own draw and creating a place that people want to come to mm. that will allow them to live, work, and play in, in a real context. Yeah, that's no longer just a marketing slogan. No, it, it's reality. It's, 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 it's happening, and it's going to continue to evolve from what we're hearing. I remember a couple of years ago at a NAOP presentation, and there's a development challenge where you got a bunch of young teams who put together pitches for the same piece of land, and then one's judged the winner. And the three contestant finalists all opened their presentation by saying, our theme is live, work, play. But none of them have spoken to each other. And this was, you know, only three years ago. But uh, you are seeing that integration in the city. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. You are. And you're also hearing actually added a fourth element, live, work, play, learn. Mm -hmm. I heard that recently and I don't know what it means. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's just the, it's the more fulsome uh, extension of the concept. I want to live in this area and I want to be able to cover off all of my needs. I want to go to school here. I want to get a job here. I want to do my shopping here. I want to do, I want to, I want to have my friends and entertain here. I want this to be my center of life. And it fits within the, with, within what we're seeing in the evolution of that younger demographic where they don't want to drive. They don't necessarily want to commute long distances. Now mm -hmm. there is part of them that will, because we're also still seeing people follow the mantra of, of drive until I qualify. Mm -hmm. um, but you're seeing both evolve. And I yeah. think that there is uh, there's a lot of demand for uh, that placemaking in, and that's happening in virtually all the major centers. And is that just a virtue of, is it, is it a generational thing and it's something unique to that particular generation or, or maybe it's the answer is both. Is it the generational thing or is it because the transportation you know, infrastructure just doesn't exist to allow you to live in Mississauga and commute downtown in 30 minutes without having a car? When we've talked about this in the past, right? The Vancouver issue, the Toronto issue, and in Montreal to a certain degree, is just you have to work downtown, and so you have to be within a twenty to thirty minute commute. And there's not a lot of places in the city that that you can live and be downtown in twenty or thirty minutes. I think that's right. I think it's a combination of pretty much everything you said. You know, we are seeing a lot more transit investment um, in most of the major centers across the country. And thirty years too late, but that's okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's not go down that path, but, you, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. And I don't think there's anybody in the industry that would dispute that or, or argue the point. I think that is absolutely correct. And even when, uh, you know, in the past, transit may not have necessarily always reflected where the development was needed or was happening. But either way, they're starting to make investments. I think they're welcome investments and mm -hmm. it will help to facilitate further development and people actually getting into and out of the core. But let's not, rem let's not forget that, you know, a number of years ago, a lot of the transit was geared towards taking people from the outer areas into the center of Toronto, into the core. Well, there's a lot of jobs and a lot of growth in jobs happening in our suburbs as well. 
And so I think part of what has to be looked at and is to some extent being addressed is the movement of people from one area to another, one node to another across the, an expanding city. And that's an important development that I think might also be interestingly dealt with as we see the evolution of technologies like ride sharing and like uh, uh, and, and autonomous uh, driving automobiles that uh, will allow the, the so, movement. So that's curious to say that, Craig, because that, that's my interpretation also, that there are going to be a shift from you have to work downtown to no, no, let's, let's allow our employees to commute 15 minutes to the office space. So let's start building suburban office or, 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 or migrating to suburban office. But then I'm looking at this, this prospects that you, you know, your survey and suburban office is last or second last or third last and all these, any sense why the industry doesn't seem to be following that same train of thought? You know what? It, it's, it's an interesting discussion. Um, and we could probably have a whole podcast just on that because I think suburban office is not suburban office always. I mean, mm. I think you have to understand exactly what you're dealing with. And there's a huge distinction to be made around office space that's located around a centralized uh, transportation hub. And that sort of facilitates development and, and into the placemaking uh, to allow for live, work, play, mm. learn, right. um, or, or at least a meaningful subset of those four as opposed to something that is really out in the middle of nowhere that's difficult or impossible to get to with public transit and you have to drive to get to. I think that there's a big distinction between the two. And I think a lot of people in the industry also make that distinction and say, you know what, suburban office is not necessarily dead, but you have to be careful, you have to be mindful, and you have to be smart about what kind of suburban office you're talking about. Sure. Yeah, I, I just because it's at the bottom of this list. If you're an opportunistic investor, you'd be thinking, okay, well, that's some place where not everyone else is attacking right now. So maybe that's I'll yeah I'll swivel when they 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 turn or you know whatever the saying is. Yeah, no, you're right, and clearly there are folks that are uh, definitely looking at that sort of uh, approach as well. Yeah, he's gonna be comfortable with a vacancy rate that's going to be double digits and higher turnover, smaller tenants, but. I mean, I know I know investors that do very well in the outskirts of the Toronto market. Anyway, there's this a very hands-on asset class, but very profitable if you want to put in the work and have the know-how. And not as competitive, probably. Well, it's also an opportunity if you think about it to consider perhaps an expanded uh, um, spectrum of potential uses downstream too. Oh, sure, sure. In the 2018 report, I noticed that the real estate business prospects every single category was ever so slightly down from the year previous. And it was universal. Every single one was like that. Not down in a significant way, but down a little bit. So why does everybody just have a shade darker outlook than they did in 2017? You know what? I think it goes back to what we started talking about. Part of the reason why I think that the overall theme here has to do with an evolution from last year's cautious optimism to this year's defensive optimism. I think that there is a recognition that we're at the high point in the cycle. Nobody's calling for a crash, but I think that people aren't stupid. They're looking around, they see what's happening in the world, they look at uh, the growth in housing costs relative to the increase in real wages. There's a recognition that the economy is doing reasonably well and will probably continue to do so, and that there may be further interest rate changes um, coming into the, in, in the future. Uh, and, and as I said a couple of times, you know, we are at a high point in the cycle, mm -hmm. so they're being defensive. And I think that the outlook reflects that they generally do have a positive outlook, but they're not, they're, they're, they're not burying their heads in the sand. They're recognizing that there are some headwinds that they just have to be careful of. And so they're modifying their expectations accordingly. Deleveraging is one you mentioned, which is particular interest to uh, Aaron and I. Yeah, I, and on that note, there's another chart that I'll refer to that, that's this real estate capital market balance forecast. And it's basically saying, do you think there's more 
the same or less uh, capital in the marketplace. And correct me if I'm wrong, but between 2016 and 2017, there seems to be a significant decrease in the amount of respondents that thought capital was oversupplied in the market, which seemed curious to me because from my perspective, nothing's changed. There's still a ton of capital, no matter what part of the capital stack you're talking about in the marketplace. But clearly it's down. I mean, on the debt capital for acquisitions, from 52% oversupplied in 2016 to just 23%. So that's a significant decrease in those that think there's too much capital out there. Well, I think what it's a recognition of and, and what we've heard, just to sort of set the record straight in terms of some of this. Sure. There's lots of capital out there. Nobody is suggesting that there is a lack of capital. I think that the sentiment is, whereas in the past, there was a view that there was just tons of capital chasing anything. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a sentiment now that there is lots of capital, but the capital is getting a little smarter and a little bit more discerning. So a little bit more of a flight to quality. Great. Um, And given that we're not seeing and not expecting to see a huge amount of cap rate compression, that there's a bit more distinction being made between the best assets and everything else. Calculated capital. A little bit, a little bit more of what I would call, well, I think the way I've heard it characterized most, most often is in the context of taking a bit more of a risk-adjusted approach to what they're buying and where they're buying it. Which is a, which is a good thing. Well, that, I think it, we needed absolutely. that. Yeah, that, it, that, that's healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why Canada will fare better than most other countries <laughs> in the next crash. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, we're all betting on that. Yeah. <laughs> Apartments are always of interest to Aaron and I because that's the the mainstay of our of our financing activities. But in the list of prospects, the high income apartments were in the bottom half of investment recommendations. Given that there is a ton of them being constructed right now, a lot of people are targeting specifically the downsizers, which now we're saying are maybe maybe not going to come, but uh, targeting the downsizers who want fifteen hundred square feet of luxury to live in. How deep is that market? Is, or is there a disconnect in the marketplace for people's interest in building those? Do you see those as having slower absorption? Or what's, what's your thoughts on that? You know, it's interesting. In bifurcating apartments into sort of the, you know, the regular apartment fair and, and sort of that higher end, um, there certainly has been a sentiment, at least among some, that Toronto is understocked with really high-end apartments, especially when you look at some other markets, marketplaces. Because that model doesn't typically work anywhere. Well, it, 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 I think there, there's a niche for it. The question, and, and you know, I'm not sure how whether we can debate the the depth of the of, yeah, sure, of the demand, sure. but clearly there's some, maybe not as much as might you know be perceived at any one particular point in time. But I think if you, if you look at sort of the evolution, we've had a lot of years and a lot of criticism where there've been a lot of small units, uh, say in the condo space, and and not much building in the purpose built rental space. And one of the things that people have been concerned about is the fact that, yes, we do still have a cohort to some degree of people that are downsizing. And if they're moving out of a three or 4,000 square foot home, they really are not likely to want to move into a six or 700 square foot two bedroom or, or one bedroom plus or however you want to characterize it. They're going to want more space. At the same time, for folks that are uh, younger and starting to have families and to the extent that we really do expect to see them stay in the core or close to the core, they need larger space than uh, a a 500 or or 450 square foot studio. And so there is a need and a growing need for, and it's been identified as a need to have sort of more two, three bedroom um, and larger footprints Mm -hmm. in order to facilitate both of those cohorts. Now, again, we we did hear of last year and and we talked about it last year, the number of projects that were focused on purpose-built rental we're not hearing as much about that for for other for obvious reasons uh, and some of the announcements that were made earlier this year. 
but we are starting to see the market and some some of the industry respond with some larger units. Now, they don't tend not to be so much in the downtown core, mm-hmm. tend to be more in the suburbs or the suburban areas. But one thing that we have to question at some point, we didn't get into a lot in this publication, but I suspect we will at some point in the future, is the expanding definition of the core as the city continues to grow, as we do intensify and put more and more people uh, living in closer proximity and build out some of the suburbs. At what point, like where, where, where do you see the core ending and the suburbs starting? Uh, and if you just think about the last five years, think about what the next five years might oh, be yeah. like. Like Eglinton's now the top of downtown, right? <laughs> well, and and I don't think there's anybody in this room that wouldn't know somebody that used to think about Young and Eglinton as nosebleed country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was that out of the city for sure. Do you want to talk about other jurisdictions? We've been kind of Toronto-centric, not, not specifically, but I think that's where our brains have been. Do you want to talk about a different area, a different region that may have jumped out at you that, that you kind of thought, oh, that's curious. And let me lead you on one of them anyway, just because just it jumped off the page at me. Number of uh, rental, uh, multi-residential construction apartment units built in the last 17 years. Uh, there have been just as many built in Nova Scotia as there have been in British Columbia. That just seemed absolutely curious to me. Well, I mean, I, I don't think BC should be, or, or uh, in particular Vancouver, should be too much of a mystery. I mean, if you think about the value of that land, mm-hmm. um, it's pretty much been, and the build-out has been embodied primarily in condos. Sure. Um, whereas if you look at some of the other centers across the country, um, including places like Montreal, where the predominant uh, form of, uh, of home occupancy is rental as opposed, to, as opposed to purchasing, or at least there's a much higher uh, proportion of that. And that's built in, it's baked into the, seems to be baked into the, uh, into the psyche. And yeah, you see other centers like a Halifax, for example, it's a great education town. Look mm-hmm. at the number of colleges and universities that are out there. And it is driven in large part by, by that student demographic. And it's and those folks are typically in rental accommodations. And so, yeah, there is a lot of building out there. And that seems to be, you know, it seems to be working for the folks that are doing that. And as long as that, uh, as long as that demand is, is there, I think it'll continue. So BC would have had the shadow market. I yeah, no, you're absolutely clubs, right. Yeah, but not tracking that number. That's right. And, and certainly we've seen over the last number of years, um, and there's been lots written about this, that you know the shadow rental market in Toronto has well been, been condos, essentially. Winnipeg? Yeah, I'd actually like to ask about Winnipeg. We actually talked about Winnipeg the last episode as well. And it was in the category of residents of that market evaluating their optimism for that market. So self-evaluation, Toronto's bursting with pride, not surprising, but Winnipeg, a couple years in a row now, is optimistic straight across the board for all their prospects and possibilities. That's because they surveyed one person in Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Winnipeg's interesting, and uh, there's been a lot of good stuff going on out there. I mean, the top five cities to watch really hasn't moved materially. It's the same top five this year as last year, just a bit of a different order after uh, after Toronto. So Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver, yeah. Ottawa, Saskatoon. Yeah, and, and you know what? I think that um, you know there's been a lot of things going on in Winnipeg. There's been a lot of building. There's been a lot of uh, development. Um, certainly from an industrial perspective, there's been a lot, and I think we talked about that last year as well. If you look at it, I mean, I think if the, the, the three top markets, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, are really solid in all categories, and there's a lot of good stuff going on. And not taking anything away from uh, from Ottawa and Montreal, or sorry, Ottawa and Winnipeg. But if you look at sort of the overall sentiments, they're still they're seen as good or, or fair prospects. They're not sort of jumping right out, but there's some good stuff going on there. And relative to some of the other markets, I think people are looking at that and going, you know what? There are some opportunities. There's stuff going on there. 
been at 550,000 people last check. I mean, that's it's significant enough. That's right. right. There's that's enough right. people there that you can get a diversity. You can probably find any type of restaurant you want, et cetera. Well, and, and you've seen some developments in some of the other areas. Now, Edmonton and Calgary are further down the food chain this year as they were last year. But if you look at Edmonton and the revitalization of the downtown in the ice district, you know, huge investment. And the people out there have a great sense of, of pride around that and, mm-hmm. and, and opportunity. We can talk about what it means to sort of existing office space and, and, and so on. But, you know, Winnipeg hasn't been quite on the same radar as perhaps some of those areas in the past um, because it doesn't have the oil that, uh, that Alberta has. Mm-hmm. But there are still things going on there. And, and, and clearly there's, there is, uh, uh, there's activity, there's construction activity and, and development and, some, and, and interest. Can we talk about uh, the expected best bets for 2017? I mean, 2018 or 2017? <laughs> uh, you are correct. 2018. If we have expected best bets for 2017, the opportunities come and gone, and we didn't act at on this them. point in the year. It's in the next three week, weeks, I predict. Yeah. <laughs> so the number one best bet for 2018 is industrial. I don't think it's surprising at all, as we already alluded to. This is a reflection of how we consume uh, all the products in our lives. Industrial has been. Seven, seven or eight years ago, not a hot, hot commodity. Now in most markets, it uh, prices are up, rental rates are up. It's uh, got a very bright future over the next coming uh, coming while. Right. And that would be both for uh, sort of the new fa- new format industrial as well as within, within the or- urban and suburban uh, uh, areas, uh, even older format industrial. It's funny, we, we talked about affordability quite a lot uh, in this episode, but something you never hear about is commercial affordability. If you have your woodworking shop and you've been in 20,000 square feet for the last 30 years and you're in Vancouver and all of a sudden now prices are skyrocketing around you, how is affordable for that for that uh, business owner? If something doesn't get mentioned in the same breath, but uh, obviously prices are up in a number of asset classes and affordability there is an issue as well for the businesses that reside within it. Well, it is, absolutely. And I think uh, certainly there's been lots in the media the last little while about the impact of rising property values in, in places like Vancouver and the impact on property taxes and how it's hitting the retailers and seeing massive increases in the property tax bills and saying, I can't, I can't pay this and stay in business. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's an issue that uh, the municipalities are going to have to deal with. I think historically, there's been a lot of the property tax base that's been covered off by commercial uh, and industrial tenancies and uh, manufacturing organizations that is changing as the economy changes over um, is, is going to present some difficulties for them as to how they manage it. And the fourth and last expected best bet for 2018 is seniors housing. Again, shifting demographics, as we discussed earlier, will drive demand for this product. I don't think they're building them fast enough and is reflected in a number of, uh, a number of the returns of some of the seniors REITs. It's a, uh, Retirement home scares me only because I, I see the boom coming, but then there's a bust 15 years after, right? Like it's it's not this long-term thing that's going to recycle itself. So I don't know really, you got to build it, but I presume it's going to convert into an apartment building in 25 years from now. I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think that the way we've characterized it in the 2018 report is more around seniors housing or age-restricted housing. And I think that uh, what you have to keep in mind is that seniors housing is not what it was a number of years ago where the spectrum was fairly narrow. And what you really meant was long-term care facilities, which mm-hmm. is largely regulated. Well, you're seeing a lot more um, breadth to the spectrum now where you have seniors focused housing that is really purpose-built rental with amenities that are focused more on the seniors and age restrictions where perhaps it's for the 55 and older um, crowd with no kids. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot more opportunity and you see that the market is responding with that where they're addressing a broader lifestyle choice 
as opposed to just focusing on sort of the long-term care or institutional end of things. Which is different than, hey, mom and dad, I'm moving into a home care facility, right? right? No, right. we're going to find a place for you that you like to live. Right. And it's, and it's also, it's dealing with that, with that demographic. And you started off earlier talking about, you know, that cohort of boomers. Well, there is going to be some element of that boomer cohort that is going to want to have that as an opportunity. And if you look at the penetration rate um, that's currently in that seniors end of the world, you know, and there's, as you, as you guys both know, there are, there are REITs out there that are focused on this space. The penetration rate in Ontario in particular, but more, even more broadly across Canada is fairly low. And what so, do you mean by penetration rate? Sorry. The, just the actual number of people that are, or the proportion of seniors that actually are, are, are seeking out and living mm-hmm. in these facilities rather than staying, staying in the homes. Home. And so we're talking about relatively no, low numbers, and it doesn't take much movement to make a big impact on the industry. And I think that they're looking ahead and saying, "Wait a minute, you know, if we do take uh, if we do take a bit of growth in that space, it's going to require a lot more of these facilities, and we just don't have them today." So Maybe. there are opportunities there. Interesting. A, a new addition to the expected best bets for this year is Toronto Office. I mean, we've talked about it before on this podcast that 18 months ago people expected. Uh, a major issue with that asset class in the city. There was too much product coming on stream. It's all been absorbed and then some, and we're now sitting in an environment where Toronto has the lowest vacancy rate in North America. Rents are rising. It's a landlord's market, uh, kind of a, but kind of a surprise story for the last uh, 12 months of the year that this really, really turned around and exploded. Chris, what are your thoughts on Toronto office? You know what? I think one of the things that we heard um, quite a bit is how I think Toronto is coming into its own and that for the next, um, you know, couple of years or, or a few years at least, that there will continue to be a, an opportunity to build out office in Toronto. And, and it really comes back again to a number of the elements we talked about before. We, we are doing well in this country and certainly in Toronto. Um, immigration is, is driving a lot of things. And we're seeing businesses locate um, and move back into the core in many respects. Not that they're abandoning the suburbs, but there is a large demand for space. And that space is embodying itself in a number of different ways, including coming back to the sharing economy and, and, and newer demands for space around uh, shared uh, co-working and, and so on. And so the sentiment is that it is, and there's a demand for that newer format, technology-driven space, and people are moving into those spaces because they're demanding it. And I think part of the challenge is going to be uh, for the landlords that own the that other space and whether or not it can be retrofitted and move forward to be uh, to be uh, demanded by the, the marketplace. And as you just uh, just referenced, it's interesting that office usage in the, its entirety is shrinking. Everybody's using less per square feet on an employee basis, and yet still that's being absorbed. I, I think that that's not changing. I think people are trying to be smart about the use of their space, but they're also trying to approach things from a broader degree of flexibility. You know, and you're seeing a lot of things coming out of the States. New York has some really good examples where, you know, flex space is, is, is coming on stream where you might have the same space used as an office one day and a and living space the mm-hmm. next or the next month. And when you look at building that flexibility in, um, you're also seeing a little bit of a resurgence of people wanting to bring teams together again. So they're being mindful of their actual footprint and making sure that the space is being used well and that it is space that employees want to work in. But you're seeing some large organizations, as much as they're facilitating disconnected working, they're also starting to bring people back in to work together in teams mm-hmm. and promote cross-pollination. Uh, pollination. Yeah, that, that concept of, of collaboration 
That's right. It's not new. I, this, I find this one really fascinating because, you know, a client of ours or I guess a, a partner of ours, big law firm that have just done a total retrofit and there are now the lawyers are now in a total open concept space where, you know, that's one of the, I thought that'd be the sort of the last you know, employment type where they would just, they would hold on to their big offices for as long as possible because, you know, they're often talking about confidential information and they need the privacy, yada, yada, yada. And and, and, and egos. And yeah, fair enough. Well, and you know what? There's still some of that. And so what they're building in is collaboration spaces that are maybe a little bit more private where you do want to get a team together, but also some a certain amount of office space where they can facilitate private so or sensitive conversations. Like breakout rooms or, breakout rooms. you know. But you know what you're also rental seeing? Rental offices or however you want to qualify it, right? You're also seeing the evolution of folks that are putting in different attractions, whether it's a coffee station or a food station, um, that promotes people moving within sort of the floors of the office, hmm. deliberately intending to cause them or give them an opportunity to bump into colleagues that they might not see all the time and start conversations just to see where that might go. To that point, uh, here at First National, we've got cafeterias on every floor. So every, every floor, every department, often we have two cafeterias per floor. And it causes you know the the, the segregation. And so the, the concept, of course, is you put one cafeteria on one floor, and that's the one everyone has to use. And it just creates this, oh, hey, at that person, I see them every day. Yep. You know, and just all of a sudden, you've got different relationships going within your, within your company. I have to eat lunch with Aaron now, and I hate it. Yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> we sit at different tables. Yeah. <laughs> One other item on the expected best best list is urban infill. From where we're sitting right now, if we look at the window, we can probably see five cranes for urban infill sites. It's it's a natural progression of real estate. I mean, not quite as advanced as places in New York where they're knocking down 40-story towers to build 90-story towers. But, uh, I mean, it, it is happening where you're seeing a lot of the low-rise being gobbled up and and Vancouver's got that too right now. I mean, to talk they've got the probably the biggest sort of glut of of potential sites. I mean, I, you hear stories now where the last two we talked about this last week. I think the last two um, gas stations in Vancouver right. have been sold for development. So if you live on the in the peninsula, the downtown core, you have to leave the downtown core to find a gas station because that's the last remaining that's sort right. of ability to place to, that you can buy without having to buy a tower to to tear down to rebuild. Well, and again, if you think about everything we've talked about, um, it shouldn't really be a surprise that urban infill would be a best bet for the simple reason that as the as the urban cores and as the cities intensify, you know, land values and optimal use of space is going to dictate um, a certain amount of uh, redevelopment and also taking a look at what uh, what is available and putting that together and actually making use of it. With mixed-use development? With mixed-use development focused on placemaking. <laughs> So I think the last thing we'll talk about today with with Chris here is just it's just income levels, and, and I think it, it has to go has to be part of the conversation we're talking about real estate and just you know how it's not keeping up with the prices, and and that is the concept of affordability. And maybe we are talking again just Vancouver and Toronto, but I think it's occurring everywhere where, where real estate appreciation is outpacing income increasing. So. Uh, do you have any comments about that? Maybe in Canada at large, or if you want to keep specific to Vancouver and Toronto, that's okay. Well. Your observation is an interesting one, it, because if you really look at the chart that's in that's in the publication, and it really does sort of bear itself out with what you see across the country. When you take Toronto and Vancouver out of the mix, you really don't have much of an issue. As I said, more recently, we're seeing some acceleration in Montreal. But beyond that, everything is fairly stable. In fact, in some markets, Calgary comes to mind, you've actually found an increase in affordability. Like it, it's, it's easier, it's cheaper mm-hmm. to, to live. And so it really is a tale of, of, of sort of Toronto, Vancouver versus the rest of the country. 
And unfortunately, some of the some of the levers that government use affects the whole country. But within it, it is something that has to be talked about. And when you look at sort of what's happening uh, in Toronto, say relative to the rest of the world, there's certainly an argument that says that you know where else, what other major city in the world can you spend uh, you know a million to a million and a half and be within half an hour of the city core? Um, you certainly couldn't do that in New York. You couldn't do that in London. You couldn't do that in Paris, et cetera. Now we can debate the merits of how comparable Toronto is, but the reality is that there is a demand and interest. Toronto and Vancouver, and they're not the only Canadian cities, but they're certainly regularly at the top of the list internationally of the best places to live. Hmm. There is demand. There's job growth here. There's population growth here. There's no secret that political stability, political stability. There's a lot of reasons why people want to be here. And and whether, whether we're able to put them all down on a piece of paper or not, the fact is people are coming here and they need a place to live. And we're just not able to churn out. There's not enough supply to meet that demand. So that's, you know, it, it, I don't think it's really a complicated issue when you really boil it down that way. And, and fundamentally, one of the things that we heard consistently from the industry is we need to deal with the supply aspect, not just the demand. Because as we talked about earlier, the demand side is, is being pushed and pulled. On the one hand, we have people being taken off the list or taken off the eligibility to buy. But Simply because they can't qualify for a mortgage at the new stress test rates that their banks are being that's, told that's, they have to do. That's it. correct. And 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 again, as as time goes on and as we see increasing prices in homes, if they don't have jobs um, or careers that that sort of grow in pay scale at the same rate, then they just get priced out. So regardless of regulatory action, they just are just not able to afford it. But at the same time, we're bringing in um, a large cohort of immigrants every year, mm-hmm. and that creates demand as well. And we, you know, we typically don't, uh, we don't have an, an open borders concept. We, we, we actually do um, have some criteria behind which um, we accept people when they come into this country as immigrants. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that they're able to um, come here and want accommodation. One of them being be able to afford it. education and ability to earn. That's right? correct. And so if they're coming here and they're business owners or they're wealthy in their own right, they're contributing to the demand as well as, you know, we do have uh, a degree of prosperity on our own here. So when you put all those things together and you restrict the land supply, either because the, dem- the, the approvals process and development timeframe continues to expand outward, or you just have more people chasing after a dwindling product mix, you're going to create the environment for increased okay. pricing. It's the perfect storm, right? It is. We are introducing a a new question for 2018 to, to end off with. We're going to ask all our guests this. And Chris, you get first crack at answering it. Uh, the question is, if you can invest in just one asset class in just one city for the next five years, what would it be? Residential land GTA. Quick, decisive action. Absolutely. Why? Uh, for all of the reasons we talked about, um, we're continuing to see um, a large amount of people coming into the market over the next number of years. Um, we continue to have challenges in building housing and dealing with affordability, and I think prices are going to continue to grow. If you were to give me a second choice, I think I would have uh, I would have also talked about uh, industrial um, mm-hmm. for the other reasons that we talked about earlier and and sort of what technology is doing. You say GTA, but you mean GTA in twenty years from now? So like Innisfil or Orangeville? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what's yeah. going to be? It may be even further out than Yeah, this. right. Uh, Aurelia is, is future GTA land banking. Yeah. And this is this is farmland an hour and a half drive away. <laughs> yeah, just for those who don't know what we're right talking about. Yeah. yeah. 
So we're, we're not doing a news segment this time because there was a whole lot to get through, a whole lot of material. It's it's a big report. And again, we recommend anybody go out there and read it if you are at all a market participant uh, in Canada. So we're not going to do news this week. It's a must read, guys. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thank you. We feel yeah, that absolutely. way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank our sponsor, First National, but most of all, I want to thank our guest, uh, Chris Potter. Thanks a lot for coming on. Again, You're most welcome. Thanks, thanks for coming guys. on again. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.